0: You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning, Lakeview Faith family. It is an immense honor to stand up here before you this morning, especially when I reflect on the men who have stood in this spot over many, many years how faithful these men have been as they've exposited God's word to us through the years. When I consider the man who currently occupies this spot, Pastor Brian, I'm humbled that he would even offer this opportunity for me. And so if some of you are sitting out here this morning wondering why this guy, I assure you some of us agree with you. (laughs) And yet... God, in his sovereign providence, has seen fit through the kindness of Pastor Brian and the staff to allow me the opportunity to be here, and so I'm humbled. As you were told already, my name is Chris Mobbs, and I'm not one of the pastors here. Uh, but for the past eight and a half years, we have served uh, a remote area in northern Uganda. And if we break bread together one day, perhaps we can tell you many story after story after story of our time there because there are many of them, but I know you didn't come here this morning to hear my story. And so let's turn our attention to the grandest narrative at all, of all time found in the pages that are probably sitting in your lap, Psalm 13. And as we turn to the 13th Psalm, I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon when he said, the preacher who neglects to preach to himself has forgotten a very important part of his audience. And so. I say that to let you know that we all ought to be keenly aware that I don't preach to you this morning because I'm an expert in this topic, in this idea, or even in this text. I haven't mastered the truths that will be coming forth this morning from the text. In fact, in this moment, I'm doing everything that I can uh, to comprehend these things. And if we're honest, that's how we approach every Sunday morning and every text. And so, the 13th Psalm Six short verses, it begins in verse one. Let's read it together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. God, you are good. And we need you this morning to open up our ears and our hearts to receive what you, by the power of your Spirit, would have us receive. We are yours. Be glorified in and through us. In Christ's name, amen. Every preacher will admit on a Sunday morning it's a daunting task to preach to an audience, especially an audience this size, because I have no idea what you carried in with you this morning. As we approach Thanksgiving, perhaps you have a bajillion things to be thankful for. In fact, maybe some of you entered this morning in a season of overwhelming joy. Praise God for that. And you have much to be thankful for. But perhaps some of you in here this morning have entered in 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 a completely opposite season. Perhaps you've come here and you're approaching Thanksgiving and you're trying to find hard the things that you know you can be thankful for. Perhaps you're in a season of questioning, a season of of doubts, a season of feeling forgotten. We ought to take note of the reality that this is exactly where David finds himself when he writes the 13th Psalm. And so if you've been in a place where you've felt forgotten, um, so is David. And if you've never felt that before, just wait, it's coming. So, whether we have come from that place or are in that place or are headed to that place soon, we all ought to take note of the truths of today's text that sometimes we will need help trusting God when we feel forgotten. That's the title of today's sermon. And as every decent expositor will tell you, the first thing we need to consider is the context which is difficult for this text because we're not given a whole lot of information about what David is currently facing when he writes this song. And actually, as I've pondered on this, I think it might be helpful for us this morning that we don't know those things because we might all come with different circumstances to this text And it makes it a little easier for us to apply it directly to our lives, not being told exactly what it is David is facing. Now we can pretend to know, we can think about all the different things in David's timeline, and we can suppose certain things, but the reality is we don't really know. It's clear that David is dealing with internal anguish, with depression, lamenting the state that he currently finds himself in. David, again, is where many of us may be here this morning, trying to come to terms with what it looks like to trust God during difficult times. It shouldn't surprise any of us, though, who are believers, that we go through these seasons of feeling forgotten. The nation of Israel and God's chosen people, as we survey the text, we should see over and over and over came to these moments where they wondered what God was up to. We see Abraham and Sarah without a child late into life. God, have you forgotten us? Or Joseph in an Egyptian prison wondering if he'd been forgotten. Or Moses wondering with the nation in the desert. Need we even mention Job? Or Daniel in the lion's den? Or his friends in a fiery furnace? So many in the Old Testament. And it doesn't change when the New Testament comes along. We see Paul stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned. Or Stephen. Stephen. The second that first stone strikes, or all the apostles experiencing persecution. All of these moments, of course, pointing us directly to that moment on the cross where the Son of God cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? God's people will feel abandoned. This is why the prosperity gospel is so insidious. And in my experience serving in Africa these past eight and a half years, and any of you who have ever been there, you know that the prosperity gospel is far and away the most prominent expression of the Christian faith in that continent, on that continent. And the longer you're there, the more you realize it's America's fault. Because we have exported missionaries who both consciously and subconsciously lead indigenous peoples to embrace this heresy. One of the most obvious observations we've experienced as a family on our mission efforts is that shallow missions yields defective results. Without sending missionaries who are equipped to exposit God's word with clarity and conviction, without teaching them, as the Great Commission tells us, the whole counsel of God's word, everything that Christ has commanded, we leave that part out. We end up with churches in Africa who sing songs that reflect what they truly believe. The most common song that we have come in contact with as a a family is one that goes like this, I will no more suffer, I will not beg for bread. And so every, uh, not every church, but so many churches across the continent of Africa this morning will be singing and clapping and dancing, singing, I will no more suffer, I will not beg for bread. I'm sorry, Adam. Adam. Um, And we know that that's, that's based upon a text in Psalm 37, but it's twisted and contorted and used out of its context to claim a promise that was never meant for the people, because I've been in refugee camps where these men and women have nothing. And that very afternoon, after they sing this song and dance, they will go to the UN World Food Program with their hands out, begging for bread. There's not enough missionaries in the field willing to speak with clarity on these issues. Brothers and sisters, we will go through seasons of feeling forgotten. And it's not just Africans who need to hear that, it's our neighbors next door who need to hear that. We will go through seasons of feeling like God is not there. Keep in mind, I keep saying feeling. So maybe some of us have come in here feeling the same way that David feels this morning and feel like giving out the same lament that David gives Psalm 13 is an important progression. It contains an important progression that's divided in our text uh, in, verse, in, two, in two verses. So it's, it's in sets of two. Uh, verse 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and 5 and 6, your, your text in front of you might have them divided. It might have spaces between those sections. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common thing in Psalms, specifically Davidic songs. It starts with lament, then to petition, and then to praise. And so we're going to to walk that this morning, walk that path this morning, to see the progression of David's heart. And I'll go ahead and give you the full outline so that you guys can know where we're headed. Number one, we're going to see in verse one and two, David's embittered attitude, his embittered attitude in one and two. And then we're going to progress to point number two, which is David's earnest appeal in three and four, his earnest appeal. And then number three, we're going to land on David's extraordinary assurance in verse five and six, his extraordinary assurance. I told Adam that I hoped my alliteration this morning proves my Baptist credentials. He told me I still need to bring a casserole. (laughs) So next week, next week. Number one, verse one and two, David's embittered attitude. How long? How long? There's a fourfold repetition expressed in this text that, 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 that does a good job expressing the, the depth of anguish and frustration that David feels in this moment. David's attitude is one of bewilderment and, and frustration, and, and I think what leads to the frustration is David's knowledge that God is all-powerful, and at any moment, at any second, he could say the word, and his, and his ills would be gone, his suffering would be finished. His enemies would be destroyed. In a single moment, God could take care of it, and yet he's letting it drag on. David's life has clearly moved into a minor key. And when we find ourselves in seasons like this, we need to remember that the minor key is used for a purpose. The musicians in here, of which I've already proven I'm not one, will let us know that the minor key is effective at expressing sadness and sorrow. The saddest songs that we can think of most likely utilize minor keys in creative ways to express their messages. The song that we just sang together, I Will Wait For You, begins in the minor key because it makes the most sense when we say, out of the depths I cry to you, that we evoke this sorrow and this emotion but eventually it goes on to sing, to sing in the major key, I will wait for you, I will wait for you. We know that's from Psalm 130. And we're not sure if this is the, a psalm written by David, but certainly we can recognize this Davidic pattern of beginning with sadness and ending with confidence in Christ. And we all have these moments where our lives take the turn for the minor key. But like in music, it's for a purpose. It's used for a specific reason. The minor key grabs our attention. It draws us closer into the music and into the situation at hand. And so we ought to know that especially as Christians, God is going to use these seasons of suffering to draw us into him, to force us to lean into him. John Calvin put it this way. He said, whoever the Lord has adopted ought to prepare themselves for hard, toilsome, and unquiet living. In other words, suffering is inevitable. This is where David's been, and he's been there for a while because he cries out, how long? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It seems as if David feels like this is a hide-and-seek game or something. He's looking for God, and he can't seem to find him. How long will you forget me, O Lord? But the question that this ought to lead us to next is, did God actually forget David? Did he actually, I think sometimes we we trick ourselves into thinking that God's super busy doing God things, and he's off doing whatever God does to turn around to look at us and go, oh no, I didn't know that David was experiencing this, that my son or daughter was experiencing this, but that's not how God works. Did did God forget David? No, he did not. God is all-knowing, and he doesn't forget anything. The Bible says that he chooses not to remember our sin, but that's not the same as forgetting our sins. He knows our sin in detail, but in choosing not to exact his wrath on his children by pouring out that wrath on his son doesn't mean that he forgets that we are sinners. He doesn't forget our sins. In fact, for him to forget our sins would be for him to forget the price that his son has paid on our behalf. The nation of Israel felt that way often. David feels that way. In Isaiah 49, it's recorded that Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So God's chosen people crying out. We feel like we're forgotten. And then God does them a favor of answering them. In verse 15, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So it says that that God has engraved us on the palms of his hands. And I can relate to that because before the smartphone, um, this was my palm pilot, right? Anybody else? You needed a really strong ink pen, and you would write what you needed to remember. I needed to tell my wife this, or I needed to tell my mom this, right? And you just pray that that ink would last all day long so that when you got home, you'd remember to do those things. But praise be to God, he doesn't engrave or he doesn't write in ink on his hands. He engraves it on his hands. And so like a tattoo, we are there, always before him. It says, your walls are continually before me. What is, that? What is the walls? Our protection. So continually before him is our protection and our need for him to protect us. We're always there. Like if you listen, God never forgets his people. So why then does David say this? Because David here is not writing a theological textbook, but rather he's demonstrating to us what it looks like to have the freedom to lament our emotions to a loving, caring God. Psalms are examples of poetry, obviously, written to emote truths about God in poetic ways, and this written directly to him. The beauty of the Psalms is that we often feel them much deeper than we feel the theological works of Paul or the apocalyptic literature or even the Old Testament narratives. And so we ought to be encouraged as we watch David, here, pour his soul out to his father, and we ought to take home with us the knowledge that God gives us the freedom to feel, gives us the freedom to emote, to express feelings openly to our loving Heavenly Father. I'm currently reading the biography of Adoniram Judson, who is the father of American Missions, And after he's been serving on the mission field for 15 years, he he writes this. He says, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. So this is the same courageous missionary who dared to do what no other American had ever dared to do, to travel to an unaccommodating land, to a remote people group, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judson is a hero of the faith. And we know at this point in his life, he actually has found God, obviously, in salvation. And he's also seen God move in some incredibly dramatic ways. And yet he still takes comfort in the knowledge that he can express his feelings to his loving father by saying, I believe in him, but I find him not. And that's what we find David here doing. In verse 2, he says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David's just confessing to God God, you're not being a really good counselor to me in this moment. I don't, I don't, I don't feel you're giving me good advice. And so I'm, I'm, I'm having to counsel my own soul, and that's leading me to, to deeper moments of sorrow, deeper places of sorrow. And, and we ought to, again, know that God isn't offended by these questions. I mean, he put it in his perfect book for us to see and to reflect on and to read and to be strengthened by. So he's not frustrated with David's frustrated tone. God is not the tone police. David is speaking to God, perhaps, in a a much different way than we're accustomed to speaking with God. Right? I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, we kind of have a prayer tone, it doesn't matter how frustrated we are in life when that prayer starts our tone shifts like maybe yesterday you were feeling forgotten feeling sad or angry frustrated I mean New Mexico State (laughs) right who knew they had a football team and so we go from ah so prayer time, dear, dearest, most gracious Heavenly Father. Dearest. I mean, who even uses that phrase? And we shift over immediately, but not David, and, and hopefully not, not, not us all the time, too. Right? I mean, have we ever started our prayer, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm I'm confused. I feel like you've forgotten me. I don't see you today, God. And if so, and I think it's so, and if so, can today's text prove to us that it's okay? It's okay. Our God is not offended by this. He is a loving God who sympathizes with his beloved children. And do we not know that he already knows Do we not know that he already sees the innermost parts of our soul? If we already feel forgotten, do we not think that he already sees that and knows that? Who exactly do we think we're fooling with our prayer tone? Have we ever thought then that maybe God wants us to bring to him our honesty and our rawness? So we ought to feel the freedom to express our feelings to God. But, Let me also say that we must be humble enough to admit that our feelings are often not reality. We must humbly admit that our feelings can be quite misleading. None of us, though, can deny that we live in a culture today that has a fixation on living life according to feelings rather than facts. Right? And so too many in our culture are teaching our children to embrace their feelings as the facts. And we're headed in a very dangerous direction. We know that. So how are we to to weigh these things? David's emoting these things. He's expressing these things. And I think it gives us freedom to express them, but not to embrace them. So let's have them. Let's admit that we have them. Let's bring them to our loving Father. But let us not cling to them. Let us be reminded of what the prophet Jeremiah said when he tells us that that the heart... The centermost point of our emotions is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Impossible for us to understand. And Paul also to the Corinthian church reminds us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So then let us use David's example that we can express our feelings, but we ought to hold them lightly. Allowing our feelings and our affections to be changed according to God's word. So there's, like I said, there's a progression to this psalm. And and David begins to walk this progression. He begins to feel this shift from a frustrated attitude to a heartfelt appeal. He goes from an embittered attitude to an earnest appeal in verse 3 and 4. As he begins to cry out to God. Listen to what he says. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I love what's at the heart of David's appeal. He's crying out to God and asking God, Lighten my eyes. Light up my eyes. Charles Spurgeon when talking about this text said this, he said, enlighten my eyes, that is, let the light of my faith be clear, that I may see my God in the dark. Let my eye of watchfulness be wide open, lest I be entrapped, and let the eye of my understanding be illuminated to see the right way. So we hear this profound humility in David's request. Who like the prophet Isaiah, admits that his thoughts are not God's thoughts and his ways are not God's ways. And so he has the humility to acknowledge his own finite mind. We need to have the humility to acknowledge that our minds are not infinite. We are not God. So we ought not fool ourselves into thinking that everything that happens will make sense to us in the moment that it happens. So David's request is, God, can, can you turn the lights back on? Can you flip them back on? But clearly we see that he's not doing that immediately because he's crying out, how long? So often God tarries. In the words of that great rock and roll philosopher Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. He doesn't always turn the lights back on immediately. And, and can, we, can we admit that this is a good thing? It's, it's, it's good for our good, it's good for God's glory, and it's also good for the world around us to see us in these moments. I think sometimes we make the mistake of feeling like um, people are most convinced that Jesus is king when Christians only walk in victory, when they're only ever completely joyful and smiley and super-duper happy. We think if, if they'll just see how great our lives are, then, then, then they'll, they'll buy into Jesus and they'll, and they'll want to be a follower of his. But can I just suggest that that's not so? Um, I think what's most compelling to a lost and dying world is looking over to see a Christian people suffering in the midst of the same brokenness that they live in, yet doing so with a steadfast faith and assurance that Jesus is king. The same Jesus who, like us, came into this world and suffered under the weight of brokenness, not his own, mind you, to make his way to die on our behalf on a rugged cross. So I think the world needs to see faithful people when the lights have yet to be turned on. I need to see us walking in our steadfast faith in the midst of the darkness and the sadness. Reminded of the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, the Lord of my heart. Not be all ease to me. In other words, this is not easy for me right here. But God, I'm relying on you to be my vision, to enlighten me, save that thou art. You are who I see, God. So David begins this progression. He continues in this progression. He goes from this embittered attitude where he's pouring out his frustrations to God, to his appeal, where he pours out his his request to God. God, enlighten me. Help me understand these things. And if David ended the psalm there, we go home very confused and sad and depressed But praise be to God, he doesn't. He takes us to the third progression, which is David's extraordinary assurance in verse five and six. And it's important to note what gets him there. It's the prayer that gets him there. It's not the frustration that gets him there. It's his willingness to humble himself before a God who knows all things to cry out to him to where ultimately he ends in a place where he is experiencing extraordinary assurance. Listen to five and six. But I have trusted And your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, six verses. We go from David claiming that God has abandoned him to now declaring that God has dealt bountifully with him. Charles Spurgeon calls this uh, the howling to the singing. How is it possible that David goes from howling to God to singing his praises? It's because there's more to the story. There's the but, which is what he comes to, but I've trusted in you. And we, we know this. We know that throughout text, we, throughout the, the, the scripture, we come to this most glorious conjunction of all, the but. And over and over in Old Testament and New Testament, we know things shift on that very word. And there's three things that happen here after this conjunction, three things that David's assurance leads him to. And I'll cover them quickly. Number one, trust, trust, but I have trusted, David says, David's circumstances have remained the same. They haven't shifted from verse one, still in the same situation, but his faith has led him to trust in God. Mark Vrogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says this, trust is believing what what you know to be true even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. Trust is is knowing, it's believing what you know to be true even when we look around and it doesn't feel like those beliefs are playing out currently in our lives. David trusts, that's not all he does, he also rejoices. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He's choosing to trust in the darkness. In fact, trusting in the darkness requires that we rejoice in what we can already know and already cling to. And what is that that he clings to? His salvation. His salvation. He knows that he worships a God who saves. He knows the promises that have come before him and the promise of, of, of his own seed that will lead to uh, the messiah and our savior there's no sadness we endure in this world Lakeview, view that will not be rectified in our salvation let me say that again there's no sadness that we endure in this world that will not be rectified in our salvation so he trusts and then he rejoices and then praise god he sings says, I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you ever find some songs hard to sing? Even here. In 2002, Matt Redman released the song, Blessed Be Your Name. I'm sure most of you know that song. And a few years later, our first son, Chase, was born. And I remember having this conversation with the most faithful woman I've ever met, which is my wife. She's the greatest missionary I have ever seen. And she's incredibly faithful. And I remember when when we had our our firstborn child, this song was on rotation in the the church that we were members of at the time. Um, And it comes to a bridge, which is a rewording of Job's declaration, when it says, you give and take away. You give and take away. But blessed be your name, right? We've sung that before. And I remember us holding our newborn son in our hands as we're singing that song and even honestly, if I can be honest, pausing and and openly talking about the pause. Like, really? You you know how you are with your firstborn, right? You're like, you'll do anything to protect. You know, four and five come along and you're like, go play. (laughs) But, But the first one, And can I sing that in that moment? Because what if God hears me? What if he he hears me say, you give and take away, and he thinks I'm just saying, here you go, God? And yet, I know there are some who sit here this morning who have gone through that exact unimaginable sadness of giving up their child, of having God remove that child from them. And yet, you sat here today, and you were in our choir, and you were here, and you sang hallelujah, thanks be to our God. Do you know what an inspiration you guys are to us? That you have ended here in this extraordinary assurance that Christ is King. And you can sing here like David sings, He has dealt bountifully with me. And did you know that is insanity to the world? for those that have experienced such a great and tragic loss, to sing that God has dealt bountifully with them. And that is exactly the insanity that the world needs to see. A people who rest not in the the comforts of this world or the relationships in this world, but who rest in the knowledge that there is a world beyond this. That is much greater than what we see and feel here amongst us. So we see in this text, as we close David's attitude, which is honest and raw, which leads to David's appeal, crying out to God, which culminates in his assurance, his faith, and his faith is in his salvation. He knows that he worships a God who saves and who draws a people unto himself. He, he knew it. He didn't see it, though, as clearly as we see it here today, because we know the cross. We've seen the cross. We've seen Jesus And we know what he's done on our behalf. And most of us in here, no doubt, have repented of our sins and placed our trust in that moment at the cross when Christ pays the ultimate price. And that's the reason why we we gather this morning and as we close this service at the table to remember that our victorious Savior, having felt forsaken by the Father, suffered on our behalf St. Augustine said this, he said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. So no matter what brokenness we're experiencing this morning, or no matter what brokenness we know lies ahead of us, we partake of this ordinance this morning to remember that Christ, broken for us, will one day make all things new. And that his life, this life, we live by, by faith and not by sight even when the light hasn't been turned on yet. We will rest in the knowledge that we will be rewarded one day in his presence because of the cross. Praise be to God for such a marvelous salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are so encouraged by David's example of, Crying out to you in a time of need, expressing honestly how he feels, and yet God culminating in assurance that you are a king who loves. Thank you, Father, for the salvation you have offered us through the cross. May you be glorified through this moment, this ordinance that we take here uh, this morning. May we never forget. May we never graduate from the knowledge that you are our saving king.